Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric, and I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and the Lumina Foundation. Thank you so much for your generous support. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena a little more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear It Cast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please rate us on iTunes so more people can find us. Yes, what he said. Now, let's get to the show. Let's hear it. And it's the first Let's Hear It after ComNet. Eric, you made it there. You made it back. And we've got ComNet-related content on this week's Let's Hear It. What's in front of us, Eric? I did make it there and make it back. And, and I was getting color recommendations for the fence from California. Oh, no. <laughs> we missed you. People kept saying, where's Kirk? No, no, said, no. You're, where's you're Waldo? You're confused because they kept up. They kept going to you saying, "I'm so glad you're here, Mr. Brown." And, Where's and you thought, Kirk? Yeah, your brother. Wow. Anyway, yes, Comnet. Comnet happened last week, and this is the first of three keynote speeches that we will be replaying for the people who missed it, or frankly, for the people who were there who can't wait to hear it again because they were extraordinary. So we're going to hear. Stacey Abrams' keynote address at the Communications Network Conference. Stacey Abrams, who should be governor, but who will be president. So, okay, so here's what we're going to listen to. The first half is her speech. Then we're going to take a short break and come back to the Q&A that she does with Sean Gibbons, who's the CEO of the Communications Network. And it, even though you may be tempted to just listen to the speech, listen to the Q&A because it's really fabulous. And then we'll be back and you and I will just talk really, really briefly about what we heard. But really, today is really about the speech and the conversation afterwards. It's really fun. This is incredible. We have to say a huge thank you to the Communications Network for letting us republish this. This, I would say, Eric, is a reminder of what a great privilege it is just to be able to listen. This is well worth, worth listening to. Stacey Abrams from Comnet 19 on Let's Hear It. Let's listen. When I was in the 10th grade, I was in AP English in Gulfport, Mississippi. I was the only student, African-American student in the class, which was normal for me. I was often the only black kid in most of my, my classes. I grew up in a family that was led by a, a life. My mom was a librarian. My dad was a shipyard worker. My mother liked to call us the genteel poor. Uh, we had no money, but we watched PBS and we read books. <laughs> and because my mother was a librarian, we spent a lot of time in the library. I actually remember sleeping in the stacks. I think that was because they couldn't afford babysitters. But I was raised by books, and I used to read voraciously. My mom and dad said, look, you can read, if you can reach it, you can read it. Uh, I grew fast and tall, so I think they misjudged that, that sentiment. <laughs> but I loved reading, and I loved words. Words were fantastic and fantastical. They could take you places. I read everything I could. And because my mother was a reference librarian, if you had a bit of confusion, for those of you under the age of 40, there are these things called dictionaries. <laughs> and they come in this really big book. And my mother would say, look it up. And with, in our family, look it up, really, she meant look it up. 
so I would look up words in the dictionary, and at one point I just decided to read the dictionary. I was also a very sad and lonely child. Um, <laughs> so I decided to read the entire dictionary, and I made note of words. I was probably 10 or 11, and that became my mission. And so by the time I was in 10th grade, I not only loved words, I knew a lot of them. And I have a pretty good memory and, and great retention. But I also learned that you use words in context. This is all back the backstory for this terrible moment in my life. So 10th grade, I'm in AP English, only black kid there. I'm also going through the angst-ridden teens. And so that's just a terrible combination. I'm assigned uh, an essay, and I write an essay on Sylvia Plath. The teacher says Stacy's is really dark, so I go with T.S. Eliot. <laughs> But her other concern was that in class, I would use multisyllabic words to answer questions or to raise points. And so at one point, she calls me up after class, she hands me back a paper, and she's given me a C. I've never seen that grade on my papers before, and so I was very confused about what it was supposed to signify. And she said, well, I gave you a C because I told you to stop using so many big words. And she said, it's making your classmates uncomfortable because they don't always know what you're saying. It's okay. <laughs> and so my question, because I was also an obnoxious child in my head, was, well, is it that you don't know what I'm saying? <laughs> but, but I was raised to be polite, and so I asked her what she wanted me to do about this. And she said she wanted me to rewrite the paper and use smaller words and that she needed me to adjust my vocabulary in class. Now, I'm the second of six children. My parents, Robert and Carolyn Abrams, were civil rights activists, and they raised us to believe that if you thought something was wrong, your job was to fight it. My dad is a bit of a firebrand, so he actually got arrested as a teenager helping register people to vote. My mom did the same work, but she's more cerebral, so she was smart enough not to get caught. <laughs> but what they taught me seeped in. And so the next day in class, I refused to turn in an updated paper because I was not going to rewrite it, but I stopped talking. And for the next week, I refused to speak in class. If she called on me, I would just stare at her. If someone asked me a question, I would ignore it. I refused to speak, and so she told on me. So she called my mom and dad and said, we have to have a conference. And my parents told me the day before, they're like, why are we being summoned to Gulfport High School for you? And I said, well, I may have caused some challenge in class because I refused to speak. And my parents said, why are you not talking? And I told them the story. I kept it to myself, but I told them. And my mother said, okay. My dad said, look, you should never be less than who you are to accommodate someone else's expectations. Much to the chagrin of the teacher when my parents showed up, they did not show up telling her that they were going to make me be better. They told her that she needed to learn how to teach me or she needed to get a new job. <laughs> this is public school, so everyone was about to be disappointed uh, because my parents couldn't pull me out. We were, that was the only high school in our state, in our city. And the teacher, I think in her defense, thought that she was helping mold me for the future. Because for the rest of my life, I've had people tell me to use smaller words, please, or dumb down my language. And I've always resisted. I wrote romance novels 
I, I write romance novels. Um, <laughs> and I would, the, the worst critique I ever got from a reviewer was that I used too many big words and I used too many high concepts, presuming that the people reading the book were capable of understanding. It was still fun, somebody kissed, they should be happy. <laughs> but I tell you the story to talk about why what you do is so critical. Because when I ran for office in 2018, I faced a similar, thank you. <laughs> I faced, now this is gonna be really long if I'll clap every time I mention the election, okay? I faced a similar conundrum with my consultants. They wanted me to soften my language, use smaller words, make it more accessible. And I always use context clues, people know what I'm saying, but they may have to look up the word that I used to say it the first time. And for me, it was such an important issue. We actually had a meeting about it with my consultants and with my team. And I said, look, I refuse to believe that people aren't capable of reaching up. If we only ever speak to people at the lowest possible level, why are we surprised that they stay there? And so we had a campaign that spoke in the language that I use, that told the stories I needed to tell. And language to me was the most critical piece on November 16th when I acknowledged the legal sufficiency of the election of 2018, but refused to concede. Because you see, I know what concede means. I know the legal definition. I know the Webster's definition. And the word concession means to admit that something is true, right, and proper. And as I sat there in my 10 days of mourning between election day and non-concession day, which is how I will mark it on my calendar for an eternity, <laughs> my responsibility was to think about the words I intended to use. Because I wasn't speaking for myself. That election was about transforming the expectations of the people of Georgia about who they were and what they could be. We ran a campaign where we showed up in communities that had never seen a candidate, where we talked about issues that had never been broadcast in the state of Georgia, where we engaged in conversations that were forbidden in our state because we were not supposed to talk about these things. And in the last moment of that campaign, it was my responsibility to use the words properly. And so in front of a phalanx of cameras, I made the admission that by the law, my opponent had become the victor in this election. But the law was wrong. The rules were wrong because any rules that allow you to strip people of access to democracy in a democracy is wrong. That was my point. And for me, the critical nature of that conversation was that for the 1.9 million people who showed up to vote for me and the 1.9 million people who showed up to vote for him and the 54,723 people who somehow got lost to the shuffle, which was the difference, they all needed to understand what was going forward. My responsibility was to not negate their action to not negate their attempt. When you tell people to try something and then you pretend it never happened, then you were diminishing their opportunity and you were convincing them to never try again. That's the power of language. That's the power of communication. When I was asked to have this conversation with you, I tried to figure out why they wanted me here. I love writing, I love communicating, I'm pretty good at it, but I didn't know what to say to this community and then I thought, well, I just ran this really large campaign that actually did have the concomitant benefit of transforming the electorate of Georgia. 
Because you see, in a state that is largely seen as black and white, we tripled Latino turnout in the state of Georgia. We tripled Asian Pacific Islander turnout. We increased youth participation. There are a few things in my one whole drop box. We increased youth participation rates by 139% in an election where we were told young people won't participate. In the state of Georgia, and this is a nonpartisan group, and I'm just going to use this because it's, it's an authentic fact. In the state of Georgia in 2014, 1.1 million people voted on the Democratic side of the ticket. And we were told that African Americans had maxed out uh, when they voted for Obama. There were no more. Don't worry about asking them to come and vote. We didn't believe that was true. And as a result, although 1.1 million Democrats cast ballots in 2014, four years later, 1.2 million black people voted for me. But we were also told that because of our intentionality of centering these communities, of talking to marginalized communities, of having conversations about reproductive choice and reproductive justice, talking about gun safety, talking about climate change, having authentic conversations that we were going to alienate white voters. And often in the work that you do, you're afraid that if you call a spade a spade, that you're somehow going to alienate the people you need to have help you. Well, what we found in that campaign is that's a myth. Because in 2018, I increased the white percentage of the Democratic vote for the first time in 30 years. matters because you all are tackling the most intransitive problems that we have in our society. You are dealing with communities that do not have voice, or if they have voice, don't know how to lift them up. You are trying to grapple with problems that seem intractable and persistent and permanent. My mission is to end poverty, and we've never managed that. But the reality is our attempt is what matters. And the work that you do communicating and connecting communities through your work matters. And so I'm going to give you three things that I learned from the campaign. Number one, we have to be honest with our language. We can't use euphemisms to describe real problems. It's not at risk. It's not health care. We have to talk about abortion because abortion is an actual thing that people need to talk about. They need to understand the contours of what it means and what it is and why it is a healthcare issue, but we can't obfuscate it by pretending that we're just talking about a generic notion. We have to talk about gun safety, not gun control, not gun denial, not the Second Amendment, but gun safety, because what we're asking for is the protection of our families. We have to talk about poverty, but we also have to talk about poor children who are of color, who are diminished and dismissed because of who they are and because of their zip code. And if we sugarcoat it or pretend we're talking about something else, we are not being honest and we give everyone else permission to not be honest with us. Our responsibility is to tell the truth. And that truth sometimes is painful and deeply embarrassing. I spent most of the first quarter of 2018 telling everyone I'm broke. I had no money. I was in debt to the IRS, $54,000. I owed everyone I'd ever met. And in my campaign, I was actually told by one of my biggest supporters to not run because they were afraid that my honesty about my economics would diminish my capacity to run. They were probably right. Had I gone about it the way we normally do, had I refused to be honest. But the thing of it is, I grew up in a whole neighborhood full of poor people. 
I work with people who are in over their heads and have no idea how they're going to swim to the top. I went to three different colleges. I went to Spelman, UT, and Yale. I owe a lot of people money. <laughs> and if I don't talk about it, how will people know that I will do something about it? And so we made the very dangerous choice in our campaign to talk about my debt before it became an issue, to talk about the places where I made mistakes. Because I grew up in a family without money. How was I going to learn to use something I'd never seen? And so we talked about financial literacy. We also talked about the hard choices you have to make. I was in debt to the IRS because my dad had prostate cancer. And you can defer tax payments, you cannot defer cancer treatment. And so for me, the, the honest conversation transformed what was seen to be my biggest liability in this election. And because of that, I was standing in an airport and this man came running out of a restaurant. He had not taken off his apron. And he hugs me in this bear hug, and I'm like, who in the world are you, and why are you touching me? But he pulls back and he says, I'm in debt too. Thank you for talking about it. Your capacity as communicators is to tell those stories and to be honest about what it means and why it hurts and why it can be difficult. We don't have to have the answers to talk about the questions and to articulate the problems. But if we don't talk honestly about the problems, we will never start to find solutions. So number one, I need you to be honest. Say, be honest. Be honest. Number two, I need you to be present. Say, be present. be present. My campaign was unusual because if you hadn't noticed, I'm a black woman in the Deep South. And we have been told that there are only certain places to run for office, mainly Atlanta. Anything further afield is just dangerous territory. I could go to Savannah, maybe Macon, possibly Columbus if I'm in the right outfit. But I wasn't supposed to go anywhere else. Because the notion of race is critical in America. In politics, race is the strongest determinant of political leanings of any factor. And if you buy into the notion that you have to stay where you are, then we will always be where we've been. And so our campaign went to all 159 counties, including places where they didn't like black people, Democrats, women, and they didn't like my hair. But my responsibility was to be present and to be present in my communication. So when I went to those places, I had the exact same conversations that I had in Midtown Atlanta and South Albany. I talked about the issues that mattered, not waiting to see if people cared or shared my values, but to communicate my values despite what they cared about. Part of being present is being wholly there and giving people something to hold on to when they're listening to you, when they're communicating with you. I went to Dragon Con, one music fest, and a gun show. I still have a contact high from one of those. <laughs> but by being in those spaces, by being present, I created a new narrative and we were then able to turn that into digital content that we would run. We turned snippets of my conversations into ads that went on country music radio and urban radio. We didn't run different campaigns for different communities. We ran one campaign to tell all communities that we see them, that we hear them, that we understand them. Often in communication, we segregate information. We don't want to scare this group by saying this thing. And we don't want to talk to these people because they won't agree. I stood in room after room and audience after audience and had people come up to me that I never would have expected who said they were so excited to hear their story told by someone they'd never imagined themselves to be in communion with. Sean talked about this being a gathering. When you write, when you communicate, when you use your capacity for advocacy, you are creating space for people to see themselves in other people's stories.
So do not assume that by not being present, you're somehow protecting yourself. By being present, you're creating opportunity for even more to join you. So number one, be what? And number two? And number three, I need you to be advocates. Say be advocates. Being an advocate means more than just reporting. It means showing. Showing up, showing that you care, and showing that there's opportunity. Often, I think in the, the C3 world, we're so afraid of talking too much that we cross over into lobbying or we cross over into politics and so we stay far away. I used to be a 501c3 lawyer. I was a tax exempt attorney for a big law firm for a very long time. It was only four years, but it felt like a really long time. <laughs> and in that space, my job was to advise organizations about where the line was. Unfortunately, when I would show where the line was, they would back so far up they could never see the line. But you were doing the grunt work of being on the front lines. You were the person in your organization who has the capacity to take the information from your grantees and the information from the communities that you see and from your leadership and from your board, and you have the capacity to turn it into a narrative that can transform a conversation. But it's not a conversation that can be had in those rooms. Policymakers make the decisions. Policymakers make decisions based on what we're afraid of. I like to say politicians are like 13-year-old girls, 15-year-olds. I've been one, so I feel comfortable saying this. We respond to money, peer pressure, and attention. That's it. Am I wrong? But if those are the pressure points, you have the most amazing opportunity to create peer pressure by sharing information with policymakers, not sending them a glossy handout that they are going to put in the stack that sits on their desk until someone else sends them the next thing, and then someday it'll be at the bottom of the pile until they lose their office and it just goes into the trash. You have the real opportunity to communicate authentic stories and authentic challenges and to call people to action because that's what an advocate does. An advocate takes the information and calls us to action and then points out when we don't fulfill our promise, when we don't do our duty. Politicians are hired to fix problems. That's the whole reason we have government. And if you aren't doing your part to hold us accountable, then you are not doing your job because you are the intercessors between those who are not seen and not heard and those who can't shut up. And when you do your work best, when you are an advocate, not simply for these esoteric notions, but for concrete ideas, and when you talk about when it works and when it doesn't work, when you talk about failures and successes and you do so in equal measure, and when you point out the people who are with you and the folks who need to be there, when you become an advocate, you transform communication. Because it's easiest to solve a problem when people are solving it with you. They can't solve problems they don't understand. And they won't solve problems they're not held accountable for. So if you become an advocate, you can change things. I am not the governor of Georgia. I know. Despite some people thinking I'm crazy, I know I'm not governor. But in my campaign, I decided to talk about another issue. I have a brother named Walter. He's the fifth of the six of us. I have a sister who's a VP of diversity at a college, a sister who's the first black woman to be a federal judge in Georgia, a brother who's a social worker, a little sister who does evolutionary biology and molecular systematics, and we still don't quite know what that means. <laughs> and our brother Walter, who's number five. Walter went to Morehouse College, but dropped out before his senior year because my brother is a drug addict. He was an addict who had been self-medicating since he was 15 because he also had early onset bipolar disorder that went undiagnosed for almost 15 years. He has been in and out of prison because when he self-medicates, 
when he does not make smart decisions because he does not have the tools to make them, he makes terrible choices and he gets wrapped into an incarceration system in Mississippi. And it's just as dire as it sounds. But Walter's been released time and again for good behavior because when he is medicated, he, when he is stabilized, he is a fantastic person. But the minute he leaves a prison, he loses health care. He can't find a job and he can't get housing. And so even though we try our best to stabilize him, he cycles and he recidivates and he goes back to jail. I talked about Walter's story on the campaign trail because I wanted Walter to be a point of advocacy. I wanted to tell his story, the good and the bad, and I wanted people to know that as someone standing for the highest office in the land, my responsibility was to defend every person, especially those we often consider beneath our experience. And in that way, thank you. And in that way, and with that in mind, I stood in a, on the back lawn in Los Angeles, telling the story of Walter, talking about what I would do to expand Medicaid and create housing opportunities and job opportunities, to make sure we talk about mental health, not as a precursor to excuse ourselves from action, but as a call to arms. I talked about Walter's issues because he gave me permission to tell his story, to show his plight. And in my advocacy, a young man heard me and called and said, we'd like to help your brother get into rehab. I said, well, he's currently serving time in parchment, so I'm not sure how that's gonna work. But we knew he would likely get out again because Mississippi is overcrowded and they will release him because he's a great person when he is stable. But because my willingness to tell his story, to not be ashamed or embarrassed or worried about what effect it would have, my brother is now in a year-long rehab program that will likely save his life. That's what advocacy can do. Every one of you knows a Walter story. Whatever your issue, whatever your area of responsibility, you know someone who has tried and failed and stumbled and stood again. If we do not act as advocates to lift their stories up and to demand action on their behalf, why are you here? You have extraordinary power. The power to tell stories, to call people to action, and to change lives. And so I'm here to tell you, get to work. Thank you so much. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications, hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is made possible through the generous support of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and the Lumina Foundation. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us on iTunes so more people can find us. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. So, thank you. Absolutely. Let's get you a quick thank glass you. of water. Thank you. So, for being honest, Stacy is amazing because you're not feeling especially well. I've got the plague, but I'm good. Okay. So, we're going to take care of her. You drink a quick, uh, a little piece of water if you don't mind. I Actually, I, you know what? Lizzo tells us not to tell Stacy Abrams what to do. No, thank you. So, but if you would like, please have some more. I'm afraid of Lizzo, too, so there you go. <laughs>
I need to ask your permission for something. And we talk about how precious time is, and we are going to potentially run over, but I'd like to make time for questions. So for folks who are leading breakouts or dialogues after this, do I have your permission to maybe take a little bit of your time? Is that okay? Okay. Y'all seem really weak on that. Try again. <laughs> Thank you. You must be from Texas. So I'm going to take the privilege of the first question and the last question, and in between, my job is basically going to be at a point. So if uh, we'll have mic runners ready in just a moment or two. First question, you read the dictionary from front to back. Number one, I'd love to ask you to do that. Uh, to encourage my daughters to do so. But, Don't do but, that to them. You want them to have boyfriends or girlfriends at some point. When they're 35. Okay. Um, the word communicate or communication. There's a definition for it. But there's also a meaning. What does it mean to you? Communication means to share information in a way that's accessible and that can be processed. It's not communication if people can't internalize it. It's not communication if they can't feel what it means and then use it to move something. Okay. Why don't you start grabbing questions? I, while we do that, I'll take one. Oh, we got one right here. Go ahead, please. There's your name and your organization if you don't mind too terribly. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you, Stacy, for sharing your story. My name is Lourdes Zuniga. I'm the Executive Director at the Financial Literacy Coalition of Central Texas. And I appreciate what you shared about your story and the story of many Americans. How can you include an equity lens when we talk about economic development? And how can we make financial education a real daily life story for all Americans to succeeding life when the wealthy are the ones that have the upper hand? So I, I tend not to think about it as wealthy versus poor. I think about it as informed versus uninformed or misinformed. If you have money, most people who have money, their families have had it. There are very few self-made anything. It's usually inherited wealth. It's usually someone else did the work and you get to benefit. And the reality then is that most of those people don't know, in fact, most of our communities don't really understand how this inequity happens. I, I talk about voter ending voter suppression through our group Fair Fight. One of the most constant responses I get is that, oh, there should be voter ID. And one of the ways they say it, well, you have to have an ID to go to a bank. I'm like, do you understand? They, there are thousands of millions of people who don't understand that there are folks who have no access to banks, who've never been inside a bank. That there's a check cashing place on the corner that also sells them their dinner. That's their source of access to financial literacy. And so part of it is telling the more difficult stories because the people you're sharing this information with literally have never experienced the inequity that exists in our financial system. And unless we detail how hard it is that we live, we campaigned in a county that hasn't had a bank in 20 years. And so the entire population is mostly unbanked unless you're wealthy, except for the person who owns most of the stuff there and they're fine but everyone else is, is distanced from that. So part of it is communicating the hurdles because if you've never had to jump them, you don't know they're out there. Next question, over here. Hi, my name is Brittany White and I'm from City Year. Um, I just wanted to say that I also had the privilege of growing up with a librarian as a mother and we also watch PBS all the time. Um, and I just wanted to know, what's your favorite book? Oh, I don't have a favorite book. I have favorite books. Or what, what are one of them? So, Same here. I, uh, you don't get to dictate that. <laughs> so, so I usually do three. So Colson Whitehead's The Intuitionist is one of the most extraordinary uses of language. He loves words. Uh, it's a good story, but it's a great book about words. 
Uh, number two, The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle by Harakai Murakami. Three, Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. And you didn't ask me, but I'll give you one too, Americana. Ngozi Adichie. Beautiful book. Next question. Yep, I see you. Here. Oh, over there. Thank you. Hi, Stacy. My name is Amanda Thompson. I'm from Decatur, Georgia. Yay. And uh, first, I just want to... I'm so proud of the work that you did for the DeKalb delegation and for Georgia. Try not to cry. Um, it's amazing, and I know how difficult that environment is. Um, but I would like to know more how your creative writing and your artist side supports this political work. Thank you. Thank you for those very kind words. I believe in storytelling. You anchor hard information when people can feel the reality of its experience. And I like telling stories. I'm, I'm pretty good at that. But I also like the structure of effective creative writing. It's what's the problem, why is it a problem, and how do you solve it? And when you translate that into creative writing, it's you, know, you create a problem, you complicate the problem, and then you offer a solution. The solving of the problem, if it's done well, you love that book and you write it down. If it's done poorly, you hurl the book across the room. You're like, I'm never reading anything about this person again. <laughs> and so part of my, not only storytelling, but my advocacy is making sure I explain what the problem is, why it's a problem, and how you solve it. Often we skip the why. We talk about a problem and then we ask for someone to give us money for a solution. If they don't understand why it's a problem, they have no incentive to continue to support you. They may give you something to get you out of the way, but you're never gonna get to come back. And so most importantly, making sure that we articulate the why of the problem, that we communicate it, is most important because that's also how people can measure whether you've been effective. If they're only measuring based on what the problem is and did you solve it, you're never gonna move the needle. But if you look at the why, if you can see that people are tackling the why, if you can see that they're diminishing the effect of the why, then they can know that you're making progress and they'll give you more time to find the solutions. And the inverse is that if we understand the why, we understand then that because you didn't get everything done with the first grant, there might be more to do because the why is much more complicated than we imagined. Over here. Hi, Stacy. Sean Adamak from uh, Boston. Thank you very much for being here. You, you've declined to run for president for yes. now. Um, you've now twice declined to run for Senate. Yes. So I won't beg you to reconsider as much as I want to. Uh, but I will ask you, what needs to be true about the race or about the job for you to give another run? Sure. I'm going to run for office again, but I... I served in the state legislature for 11 years. I spent seven of those years as Democratic leader. One of the reasons I ran for leader was I was either going to be in charge or I was going to go. Because the deliberative process of the legislative bodies, while incredibly important and critical to the function of democracy, is not my jam. I do not like it. <laughs> it is spending a lot of time not only trying to move policy, but trying to convince your colleagues that the policy matters and that it matters more than this other thing that they want. When I became Democratic leader, I got to help control the strategy and the narrative and build infrastructure, because that's what I like to do. I want to build infrastructure that solves problems. I like to be both strategic and tactical. I like creating things, and I like executing. You don't get to do that as a legislator. It's, in, it's exactly outside the responsibility of the legislature. And so the jobs I want are jobs that allow me to use power to advance the cause of justice and progress, that help me tackle poverty and all the ancillary effects. 
and that let me be in charge. That's the job I want. But within the confines of the Constitution and without taking any actions that are high crimes in this country. Uh, good morning, my name is James Carter. I work with Collegiate Directions. I live in Los Angeles. My 71-year-old mother and aunt live in Woodstock, Georgia. You came to speak at their church, and since that time, they've had to have armed guards there, and I told them, be careful, Georgia. We love Stacy. we believe in Stacey. As you continue your ascension, I just want to remind you that there are people who love you and believe in you. I sent them your picture and there just now, and their response was, we love her. I'm gonna take a privilege of question. I said I would, but I'd like to I'd like to actually ask you to tell us a quick story. And you can tell it in either one of these two ways, which is when was the first time you were exposed to voting? Did you go with your mom or dad? Um, or was your first memory of voting as an adult? Well, we were taken with my parents to go vote every time. And as I said, there's six of us, so we look like make way for ducklings as we would follow them in. But my mom and dad wanted us to see them vote, and we saw them vote every election. Uh, my first time voting was actually in second grade. Uh, we had a mock election, it was Carter versus Reagan. It was also the only fight I ever got into in school um, because a young girl told me that Carter was a communist and I told her that Reagan was a fascist. She threw a book at me, I threw a desk at her, we got separated. <laughs> I won the argument if not the election, so there you go. Yeah. I told you it was the only fight I ever got into. I let you know if but you, you fight, you gotta win. This is one of those little desks, right? Yes, except for second graders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was more of a shove than a throw, but it had the same effect. Hi, Stacey. Hi. I, I'm Maxim Thorne. I'm with the Andrew Goodman Foundation. Um, so as you know, uh, Andy was 20 years old when he volunteered for Freedom Summer. He was a white upper middle class, if not upper class, white New Yorker who got killed by the Ku Klux Klan his first day in Mississippi when he and Michael and James were trying to register African-Americans to vote. Um, over the summer, I spent time with David Goodman, his brother, and his family, and they were rocked by the white supremacist killing in El Paso because there was a whole set of new martyrs that were being created based on the same kind of racist ideology. Um, and we work, as you know, in 25 states and D.C., trying to increase youth civic power and voting rights. And what we've seen is the level of fear that's increased about people participating in the census or registering to vote. We have won two lawsuits already, one in Florida and Tennessee. But I don't know that the horrors, besides the killings, but the horrors of, of uh, the fear and the voting suppression that is targeting young people and people of color and so forth is rising to the level of national attention that it deserves. 
and it's certainly not even making the primaries in the, in the Democratic uh, presidential race, Democratic uh, presidential primaries. Uh, what is wrong with our storytelling that it is not getting that attention? And can you help us with that? Sure. So, first, thank you for the work you do. <coughs> I will say that we've heard more about voter suppression in 2019 than we've heard before. And part of that happened, I, I, I don't want to take too much credit, but you know, we had, I, you know, I ran against a cartoon villain, so there was a very clear, <laughs> there was a very clear narrative that emerged from that election. But also because I refuse to concede and I've spent every time I've been on anyone's, you know, television, newspaper, bathroom wall, I talk about voter suppression. But I've also had this conversation with every one of the presidential candidates I've met. And if you listen to their rhetoric, most of them have mentioned voter suppression in some way. Now, that's different than what's happening in the debates because the debates are not governed by the candidates, they're governed by the news stations. And part of what we have to do is start putting more into the narrative, pushing them to have this as a national debate topic. That's number one. But number two, it's voter suppression is complicated. In the 1960s, it was very clear. It was, there was a law saying you can't vote, and there were rules that precluded your ability to exercise that power. Now it's being purged off of rolls for you know, voter cleanup, where you know that the purges are wrong, but because they've been baked into the narrative of how we stop voter fraud, you know, dead people don't vote, and you know, this is not 19, you know, 1930 Chicago anymore. And so part of it is that we have to demystify how voter suppression operates. It's can you get on the rolls and stay on the rolls? Can you cast a ballot and can your ballot be counted? Every group that cares about this should focus on explaining those three pieces because the tragedy of voter suppression is it's designed to look like user error. We are convinced that it was my fault. I should have done this. It's my fault. I didn't know that. No, it's not your fault. We have the most complicated asinine system of voting than you can imagine. We have 50 different democracies with 3,100 different units of government responsible for exercising that power, and there is no uniformity to how they do so and very few remedies for when they do it improperly. And because of that, we have to remember that voter suppression is a feature of America. It is not a bug. Our nation was built by excluding certain communities from having a voice. And fundamentally, this is a question of power. We have to talk about voting as a power play. Those in power do not want others to take that power. Therefore, the easiest way to stop it is to close off the one mechanism that allows you to grab that power, and that's the right to vote. And so the responsibility and the way to tell the story is to talk about it as a question of power, to talk about it as a question of overly complicating what should be a fairly simple process, because there are hundreds of other nation states that have managed to do this without all the complications. And voter fraud is a lie. It doesn't actually exist. We don't need to fix it. It doesn't happen. But voter suppression happens in every election, in every community. And we have to give people the space to declare their stories. The last thing I'll say is this. In 2018, between November 6th and November 16th, we received 40,000 phone calls from people who experienced voter suppression, including a young woman who was told she couldn't have a provisional ballot because they needed to save it for real voters. A man who stood in line for four and a half hours having voted in the same community in this tiny town in Georgia for decades. He gets to the front of the line at seven, a little after 7 p.m. They tell him, oh, we moved you to another precinct, but it's too late to go, so you can't vote. 
Those are not user error problems. Those are systemic problems that have to be addressed. And what you can do is that we have to tell these stories and we have to call reporters and say, tell this story. We have to write op-eds and tell people about the story. This is a power grab that if you cannot win on the merits, you win by cheating. And it's a cheat when you limit access to voting for any eligible citizen in America, whether it's one or a thousand or 54,723 or five million. It does not matter how many it is. If one person cannot vote who is legally eligible and is precluded from doing so, our democracy isn't working and we've got to fix it. Hello, my name is Mike carter and I'm with Spitfire Strategies in DC. Uh, first, thanks for joining us today. Um, you've made clear that you won't run for president this cycle, and I believe, reportedly, you've, you've communicated openness to serving as a VP to any of the Democratic candidates. I'm wondering, in your conversations with those various candidates, if you've had any explicit conversations about serving in that role, and considering the critical work that you're doing currently, and considering current events, I'm wondering if you're prepared to drop everything to serve President Pelosi. <laughs> Very nicely done. Very well communicated. Okay, number one. It is weird that people are asking if I want to be vice president. That's not what usually happens. But because I've been so intentional about meeting with presidential candidates, tell them two things. One, voter suppression is real and you need to talk about it. And two, Georgia is a battleground state and you need to show up. Those are my two messages. Very short, very quickly. Because I met with this guy named Joe Biden and we had lunch, a rumor started that he'd asked me to be his vice president. That is not what happened. But in order to cross that rumor on The View, I had to make a very clear and deliberate statement that in a primary, because I was thinking about whether I wanted to run for president, you do not run for second place in a primary. That then became extrapolated to say, I will never serve unless I can be the one in charge completely. And as I said, I like being in charge. But once we have a nominee, I'm happy to be second in charge. <laughs> we have time for one more question. And I see lots of hands. Do you want to take as many as you can? Yes, I, I promise you really fast. This is the lightning no. round of Jeopardy. Okay, the, the, the people who had your hands, no, I saw who you were. There's a young woman, yet. stand up. You, yep, stand up. Y'all are it. And then the woman in the back in the red who has been waving like she was trying to flag down a plane. Please. <laughs> You guys are the last questions. Was there someone over here I didn't see? Okay, stand up. Okay. Um, my name is Carol Rebarson. I, I was also the only non-white student in AP English class in Mississippi. I now live in Washington, D.C. I work for the Online News Association. We talked a lot about challenges that you've overcome and advocating for issues and such, but I think it's really important to talk about joy, and especially black joy. So if you could tell us a quick story of the last time not last time, but a time that you really felt joy. So a few days ago, I was with my nieces and nephews. This sounds self-aggrandizing, but it's just a hilarious story to me. So my nephew, Jordan, is starting to run cross country, and he had his first meet, and he was bringing my brother, Richard, over to meet his new friend, David. And when he brings Dave, Richard to meet David, Richard, well, Jordan says, hi, David, this is Stacey Abrams' brother. <laughs> And my brother Richard says, I'm also your dad. <laughs> and the reason that brings me joy is not, not just the humiliation of my brother, 
work that we've done where my nephew cares enough, he's in eighth grade, that he and his eighth grade friends care enough about politics that it mattered to them who I was. And it's not about me, it's about believing that these young men who are normally considered outside of anyone's conversation about political advocacy or even political concern, two young black men who cared about an election, who cared about the outcomes. Now, Jordan wanted to come and swim in the pool at the governor's mansion, so there's a little bit of, you know, <laughs> a little bit of problem there. But the larger piece was that David had no reason to care. And we were able to do such a job in Georgia that we animated their belief that they should care about politics and that matters. Okay, let's do the back. Hi, Stacey. I also want to ask you whether you can run for president again. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm from New York day. City. I don't know when. <laughs> I'm from New York City. My name is Lucia. I work with an organization called Raices, uh, which yes. is waterfront with immigration. Uh, one of my questions is, as a communicator and as a woman of color, we've had a harder time, you know, being heard um, unless we are the token of an organization because we're currently trending. Um, so I wanted to ask you, as someone who has led a path for women of color, specifically for black women, to be at the forefront of all these important issues, what is your recommendation around how do we continue to put our foot down as communicators of color to have control over our stories? so no other folks take over and pretty much be at the forefront. Okay, so <coughs> I think it's important to acknowledge that certain conversations are going to need multiple voices and faces to tell the story. Because sometimes people can't hear it unless it comes from something they feel familiar with. That said, I don't mind being a token. If I'm the token but I'm also the top, that's fine. <laughs> and, and I mean it in this way. Sometimes we, we confuse position for power. We assume, and I talk about this in my book, Leave from the Outside. Um, but, thank you. We think that because you have a title, that determines the four corners of your power. Your power is as much as you can grab, and your power is as much as you can push. And so sometimes being in a smaller role that people aren't paying attention to, and being the only one there, gives you an extraordinary power because guilt is in a very effective way to get stuff done. And I believe in leveraging guilt, shame, animosity. I'll use it all. And so for, for women of color in particular, we have to hack those opportunities by saying that even though what they've presented is X, how can I turn X into Y? And how can I push that forward? And so rather than seeing the limits that they've placed on where you stand, Realize that you might be there alone, but that means you got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, but the second part is that we also have to keep, once you, they let us in the door, we got to prop that door open and start seeking other people in with us. That's the other obligation. Yes, ma'am, our flag person. Hi. Hey. I need you to come forward a little bit so I can see your face. Well, sure. Okay. I have no problem okay. close to you. So. My name is Shorin Rush. I am a graduate student at the University of Texas, go Longhorns, um, in their journalism program. And I, like you, have always been the like token black girl in all of my classes. 
And as I get more into my career, I'm starting to notice the importance of storytelling and being an advocate for change. And so I just wanted to ask you, what would be either the best piece of advice you've been given or a piece of advice that you would give to your younger self as you're starting to develop or trying to be an advocate for change in this current generation? So my, my mom, the librarian, both of my parents actually became Methodist ministers at the age of 40. They weren't poor enough, so they went for permanent poverty. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, they went, we moved to Atlanta so they could go to Emory. They moved back to Mississippi. My mom consolidated three tiny churches into a, a larger church. And we would help her with the work she was doing, and we would get very frustrated with the people she was trying to serve who would not be served. And my mom's advice to me, which has guided much of what I've done, is that you meet people where they are, not where you want them to be. We spend so much time trying to convince people to share our values and to share our experiences. We forget that they come with stories of their own, with beliefs of their own. I don't believe in conversion. That's what my parents do. They, and they won't know if they're right till Jesus tells them. <laughs> my job isn't conversion. My job is convincing. And that's what communication is. It's convincing people to at least take seriously the narrative that you're providing. But it's not that you're going to somehow put them on the road to Damascus and transform them with your words. It doesn't happen. But meet them where they are and give them a reason to move towards you. That's the way I've tried to guide my political life, my business life. When we stop trying to convert and we work on convincing, then our mission becomes a little less, but the opportunities grow. So meet people where they are, not where you want them to be, and then help guide them towards the goal that you have. Okay, you get the very last, nope, you got it. So, yeah, two questions, so yes ma'am. Hi Stacy. my name is Mai, I come from Los Angeles, ECMC Foundation. Um, thank you for being here. So, you are bold, courageous, fearless, and that's really inspiring, and I feel like a lot of us here are inspired by you. But has there ever been a moment where you were afraid to speak up? How did you overcome this? And we as advocates from time to time may become fearful of speaking up. What advice do you have for us? Here's what I think about fear. We all have fear. I believe in embracing my fear, turning it into my friend, uh, getting to know it, taking it out to dinner, just being comfortable with it. Because the fear is never going to dissipate. When you're in a space with people with more power than you have, when you feel like you're not only a token, but when you feel like an interloper, it's going to induce fear. And when you're speaking to people who can control whether you have a job the next day, it's an intense fear. But the reality is you have to live with yourself after that moment. And so the algorithm that I use is, am I gonna be more upset by their reaction or by my inaction? Because you can mitigate their reaction. If they don't take it well the first time, you've got some stuff you can do. But often your inaction can have long-term consequences because often you are you contain information others don't and your failure to provide it means you are failing to speak for those who will never be in that room. Now, you don't have to do it every time, but you really need to make that the, the question you ask, which is worse, their reaction or your inaction? And that's how I make my decisions. You, so you get the last question is be transformative, thoughtful, life-provoking, okay. No pressure, go on. 
Hi, Stacy. I'm Elise. I work for the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. I work then for you've Elise. Already won the work. <laughs> Thank you for your passion and for your purpose. Um, we also I loved the three action steps that you really gave us today in the theme of your speech. I'd like to ask you, because you are in a room of incredibly gifted communicators, what can we do to help you? Thank you. So that's, see, you did, you met the challenge. So you just won the question. Okay, number one, actually remember what I've said. Okay, so what are the three things? Be what? That's perfect. Number two, the two issues I am focused on every day right now for 2020 is voter protection, ending voter suppression, and the census. The narrative, the narrative of who we are as Americans is told in the census every 10 years, but the cost to communities for non-participation is extraordinary. One perfect example is prison gerrymandering. The most under-resourced communities tend to produce the most incarcerated populations. They tend to be housed in communities where they are counted not as part of the community, but simply as a way to gain access to resources. And therefore, the resources that can help those communities survive don't go to those neighborhoods. They go to rural counties where the only typically minority populations, the only minorities are the folks who are being incarcerated. Jay Inslee, governor of Washington, has just passed a law to end prison gerrymandering in that state, but that is a conversation we need to have. But the larger conversation is that the census is not going to tell anyone to come, it's not gonna tell ICE to come pick you up. It's not going to send you to jail. It's not gonna racially profile you. It is going to guarantee that your communities get the resources they need to tackle the challenges that, are, that seem impossible. We have to talk about voter suppression and we have to talk about the census. And every single person, no matter what your issue, no matter what your frame, the census matters. And we have to not just talk about how important the census is, we have to act on it. We have to make certain that it is a through line for all the work that is being done. Because if we don't know who is counted, then they do not count in the future of our country. In the next 10 years, we're going to be transformative in terms of demography, wealth, healthcare, criminal justice reform, whether we have a planet, all of these things are at stake. And so if you will remember the three pieces, and fight for fight against voter suppression and for a fair count. I'm good. Thank you. Now I'm gonna take the privilege. Please one more question. This one's on me, if y'all don't mind. And it's a good one. So Sean and a few other folks have asked you about plans for 2020. And I understand that you are willing to make a little bit of news on this stage that I think these folks will be deeply interested in in hearing. And so, do you, do you want to hear this news? I think you need to stand up to hear this news. Now, are you sure we should tell them? I'm kind of scared. Now. I told you. You did. You, you, I warned you. You really did. If you see me running off the stage, you... Yeah, you better cover me. You get a desk. Okay. Just kind of throw it. Uh, the, news. the news of the day is that ComNet 2020 is coming to Atlanta. And now we're back 
So Eric, I think we've got this all wrong. I don't think you and I need a podcast. I think Stacey Abrams needs a podcast. Well, I'm gonna subscribe. I'm just one gonna of these listen. days she's she's gonna have a po- podcast. It's gonna be called the President's Saturday Afternoon Address. Excellent. <laughs> yes. That will be her podcast. Oh my goodness! I, this this woman will be the president. She will. I'm oh. telling. I'm. T- you heard it here first. No, uh, you didn't hear it here at first. You heard it from uh, the thousands and thousands and thousands of people whose lives she's touched and. To whom she has connected in these amazing ways, and she connected to everybody in the room, at at uh, at Austin, and it was really really amazing. It was so exciting because it really it, it was in so many ways a an end cap. Well, actually, Trabian Shorters was truly the end cap because he came on Friday afternoon. We'll be publishing his speech. Yeah. It was really more of a talk uh, in the next week or two, I think. But it was. Her her way of communicating, her understanding about how people live, her connection with others, her understanding of her audience, her ability to articulate complex ideas in ways that people can get, even though, as you heard, she doesn't mind using big words. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I think is extraordinary. And it's it's such a it was such a privilege to be there. It was amazing to have her in person, the communications network to be able to have her there and the just the sense of the room the excitement in the room was just amazing see this is i know we don't want to go long because we've already gone long with this but i do want you to speak to that piece because in addition to how great she was let's be honest let's be president present let's advocate like such great things that she brings to that conversation the sense of energy you get from her presentation but also the response in the room what a great view into what the communications network conference is all about. So how, what was that piece like? Cause you're there, you're in the presence of this. And, and, and I've already s- submitted my, um, advanced ballot, by the way, for the Abrams presidential campaign. Okay, I've already, I, yeah, I, I've, I've filled, I've just checked the box and sent it in, but what was it like? What's that feel like to be in the room? Well, every so often you're in a place where you know that you're, that, that something special is happening. And that was that moment. Uh-huh. It was, it was really just uh, something that was very, very hard to, to describe. If you weren't there, you know, you can't know it, but it was very special. It was a sense of how communications can, can really make a difference and how somebody who gets it intrinsically is able to turn that into something incredibly positive. And I would say for the week, the the thing that I came away with were the people who were speaking in affirmative ways about building together, about about unleashing the these these incredibly positive, powerful kind of whatever energy to make a difference. And this wasn't about mm. smiting the enemy or destroying other people with whom we don't agree. This was about building something better. And I think that's her message. That was. Uh, Desmond Mead's message, Desmond Mead, who will also be playing in the next uh, couple of weeks, the the single 25 of the most incredible moments wow. of 2019 for me. He ran the campaign to get felons in Florida the the right to vote, which was a bipartisan campaign. It was incredibly successful. That was ex- that was extraordinary. And Trabian Shorters did the same thing. How do you talk about the work that we all do in affirmative ways that bring people forward? 
And that was just, you know, that's what I was getting out of the whole thing. And Stacey Abrams, of course, is the most visible person, one of the most visible people in our culture who who's doing that. And that's why she's going to be president one of these days. And she may well just be vice president uh, before she gets to be president in this election. If you exclude, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a possibility. It's totally out there. Well, just extraordinary. And again, you know, thank you to the Communications Network for hosting this conference every year. Thank you for letting us republish this content and not just the keynote, but all of the Q&A that went with it. Well worth the listen. And uh, Stacey Abrams says that it's time for us to get to work, which um, my goodness. Okay, I'm ready to go. Anything else you want to say, Eric? That was really tremendous. What a treat. Let's get to work. Thank you so much. Let's do it. That's let's hear it. We'll see you next week. Okay, everybody, that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show. And that definitely includes yourself. We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. Sarah Morgan, our tireless social and digital media maven. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Limited Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments, all for their generous support for this work. Oh, and check out Heinz's terrific podcast, We Can Be, hosted by Grant Oliphant at Heinz.org slash podcast. Absolutely. And we certainly thank today's guest and, of course, all of you for listening. And thank you, Mr. Brown. Oh, no, no, no. Thank you, Mr. Brown. Till next time. (laughs) Let's hear it.